This evening, we reflect on history's most sad and surreal day as we think about Jesus' crucifixion. Recall the timeline. Just a few days ago, Jesus entered Jerusalem, cheered by the people as king of the Jews. Yesterday, he celebrated the most holy holiday, Passover, with his disciples and commanded them to love one another as I have loved you. Last night, he was agonizing in prayer in the garden of Gethsemane with sleepy Peter, James, and John before being arrested, arrested as a criminal and abandoned by his friends. Early this morning, he was unjustly tried by the Jewish leaders, found guiltless by Pilate, yet condemned and flogged to satisfy the crowds, and finally hung upon a tree next to thieves and murderers for all of Jerusalem to see. As you look back upon that gruesome event, as you look upon the cross, what do you see? Your answer to this question is critical because the cross distills the essence of our faith, the meaning of all human history into a single moment in time. It's through the cross that we perfectly and clearly understand the magnitude of our offense, the nature of the offended God, and the costliness of Christ's offering to restore our relationship with him. Again, the offense, the offended, and the offering. When we look upon the cross, we vividly see the magnitude of our offense. As John Stott puts it, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Crosses are signs of death. If you're wearing one, you might as well be wearing a skull and crossbones. Crosses signified guilt and the ultimate torture in the Roman world. In that way, they illustrate the human condition well. Without the cross, we're enemies of God, children of the devil, and dead in our trespasses and sins. These words are strong, enemies, devil, and we find them hard to believe. After all, we're not Hitler, Stalin, or Mao. We might have cheated on a test once or had a little much, too much to drink or stolen something, but nothing worthy of that kind of language. But we're, being judging, we're judging ourselves against our standards rather than against God's. Our standard might be, you shall not murder. And we haven't murdered, but Jesus taught us that anyone who is angry with his brother is subject to judgment. We might think that it's acceptable to hate our enemies or to hold grudges or just to wish people ill. But Jesus commanded that we should love and pray for those that we don't like. We may be too busy to be a good Samaritan, but Jesus and James teach that if we know the right thing to do and fail to do it, we've sinned. Ultimately, Jesus tells us that God's standard is perfection. And James reinforces this idea by saying that if we keep the whole law that stumble at one point, we're guilty before God. This guilt isn't something we can remove because we're now tainted with sin. We're spoiled, contaminated like lepers and cannot enter God's presence. We fall short of his requirements and the only wages we can expect from our lives is death. Do you believe that your little lie, that lingering lust or languishing laziness is deserving of execution? 
Have you lowered your view of sin by assuming its smallness or its secrecy would allow God to overlook it? Our offenses, big or small, don't allow us to just apologize and move on with our relationship. The cost of the problem is so momentous that we can never cover our offense and reconcile our relationship with him. Why is this? We return to the cross for the answer, for it shows us the holiness and the justice of our offended God. If we offend Allah or one of the gods in churches down the road, we could just work off our sins by prayers or donations or penance. But in the cross, we see the holiness and the justice of God. We're stripped of the common facade of a bald, gray-bearded, grandfatherly-like God who, as C.S. Lewis puts it, likes to see people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that a good time was had by all. In contrast to this characterization, God is holy and cannot tolerate our breaking of his commands. As Revelation 15 puts it, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Similarly, Habakkuk 1 says, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. On the cross, common misunderstandings of God's nature are shattered. His holiness prevents him from overlooking sin or turning a blind eye to the breaking of his law. In the cross, God's holiness is expressed and justice and wrath is shown. Though we often overlook the stories, God executed quick justice for sin when he struck down Uzzah, who accidentally broke the law and touched the Ark of the Covenant. And also, when he immediately killed Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the apostles about what they sold their land for. Don't let God's justice and patience and common grace lull you into thinking that he's not offended by you and that his justice won't be served in due time. Don't minimize the degree of his holiness, but see it expressed in the cross. We clearly have a problem. St. Anselm said it this way, because of sin, man owes to God what he cannot repay. But unless he repays it, he cannot be saved. Thankfully, God does not leave us without hope. Our offended God is holy and just, but that's not all. The cross also shows us that he's loving with a love that surpasses all understanding. In the cross, we see the tangible love in the form of an offering, the offering that reconciles our offense with the offended God. In the cross, we see the extent of God's love by the nature of the offering that makes us right with him. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, but the old covenant system of killing bulls and goats could never permanently take away our offense. These temporary sacrifices merely hinted at, point, pointed to, whispered of the ultimate offering that was to be done once and for all. An offering that needed to be perfect without spot or blemish, and therefore one that we were disqualified to make. But just like he did for Adam and Eve and for Abraham and Isaac, God provided the offering himself. Instead of animals, God sent something much more valuable. 
He didn't take the easy way out by sending a human priest or even an angelic being. He shows us his majesty, his majestic love by sending his son, his only son. He didn't send Jesus to shake hands like politicians or absolve people like priests, but to be the offering itself on the cross. The offering to pay for our offense and satisfy the justice of God. Think of that. Many of you have recently experienced the birth of a child and the strength of that bond. Look into the eyes of Hannah or Finn. Many of you have older children and think of that as well. Would you be willing to give him or her up to save a family member? To save a friend? How about to save a criminal? How much more valuable and therefore loving is it for the Father to offer up the precious blood of Jesus as part of his plan before the foundation of the world? As much as we see the Father's love on the cross by sending his Son, we see Jesus' love as well. We see his love and his obedience by humbly becoming human and submitting to the Father's will. The creator of the heavens and the earth entered his creation by being made a little lower than the angels and tasted death for us. The sovereign king that every knee will bow to truly suffered, truly bled, truly died. The forever perfect priest who is the final mediator, wholly innocent, unstained and exalted above the heavens, and who is tempted and without sin. The creator, the king, the priest, the God-man became the offering for us. Understanding Jesus' offering, how God is offended, and our sin is critical to experiencing today's solemn memorial and truly knowing him. As you look upon the cross, ask yourself what you're not seeing clearly, what you're not seeing as clearly as you should. If you don't see the egregiousness of the offense of your sin, then the cross is foolishness. If you don't see that a holy God is offended and perfectly just to punish sin, then the cross is not necessary. If you don't see Jesus as the perfect offering sent to take away the sin, to take away our sin and make us right with a loving God, then you still owe an unpaid debt to him. With this background, let's return to where we started and look upon the cross one more time. You climb the path to Golgotha, the place of the skull, and see many crosses littering the hillside outside the walls of Jerusalem. People mill around looking at the deadly spectacle. You can smell blood and hear the agony of bodies baked in the sun, gasping for breath as they slowly suffocate. Suddenly you hear a Roman soldier in the distance yell, that one, how did that one get away? Immediately you feel the force of your head hitting the ground and splitting open as two soldiers tackle you. Get another cross, the guard yells, and you feel yourself carried over to a splintered beam. Not me, not me, you yell. I haven't done anything wrong. I don't deserve the cross. No one cares. Your clothes are ripped off and you feel the beam cut your back as you're held down. An old rusty nail is centered on your wrist and begins to pierce. Pierce it as the hammer is raised poised to strike. Your heart pounding, you hold your breath, anticipating the blow, but then a voice from above commands, stop! 
Your head is throbbing and the blood is dripping your eyes. You squint in the direction of the noise and barely make out a sign on the cross next to you that reads, King of the Jews. Stop, he repeats. I've taken his place. I'm dying for her. The soldier yields and lowers his hammer. The pressure is released from your wrists and your feet as your accusers free you. Staggering to your feet, you look up at the king, unable to comprehend what he's done for you. The man doesn't look like a king. He wears a crown, but it's a crown of thorns. Gone are the royal robes you would expect to see on him. Instead, the hands that healed lepers with the touch are pierced by one of his own carpentry tools. The feet that Mary celebrated taking his first steps three decades earlier and carried him through his kingdom are immobilized against the tree that he spoke into existence. The sacred blood of the new covenant dyes his brown skin crimson. A drop falls on you and you're healed instantly. As you watch, the king cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in time eternal, their relationship is broken. The son is separated from the father. He's alone, truly alone. That is hell for him. That should be hell for us. It is the cost of our offense and the justice of the offended God. It is the love of the willing sacrificial offering who took your place, who took my place. It is finished, the king gasps and breathes his last. Does that story take your breath away as well? Look once more upon that beaten, nail-pierced body and feel the weight of the sin that put Jesus there. Feel the weight of the cross that should have been on your back. Feel it and then hand it to him, for it's been justly paid for forever by his loving substitutionary offering. Leave with heavy yet joyful hearts and look forward to the hope of Easter as the cross isn't the final chapter. Find forgiveness from your offenses and peace with God through his loving offering on the cross. Let's pray.